Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. <laughs> okay, that's kind of a weird way of starting the podcast, but it's a, a radio drama, which is going to be the topic of this week's podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I'm Ken Levine, your podcast host. And like I said, I'm going to discuss something that I have never discussed on this podcast before, radio or now audio drama. It is storytelling that really takes advantage of your imagination. Now, way back in the 30s and 40s, of course, radio dramas were the equivalent of primetime entertainment. It's kind of hard to imagine now, but back then, whole families would get together after dinner and sit around in the living room and just look at a radio. (laughs) Well, for decades, radio drama has been a lost art, but now with podcasting, there really is a resurgence, and there is a podcast series that is going to be dropping on Audible on June 16th called The Big Lie. It's a noir drama set in the 1950s with an all-star cast that includes John Hamm, Kate Mara, John Slattery, our friend Lisa Edelstein, Giancarlo Esposito, Gus from Breaking Bad, and others. So my guests today... Actually, there are two of them, are writer John Mankiewicz and director Aaron Lipstad. Now, John's credits include House of Cards, Bosch, House, uh, and he goes all the way back to Miami Vice and Hill Street Blues. And Aaron's directing credits include Bull, Bosch, Grimm, all shows with one-word titles. No, that's not true. Law and Order, Wise Guy, another one-word title. The Equalizer, The Good One, with Edward Woodward, not the the current one, and also Miami Vice. So they're going to talk about the making and challenges of a radio drama. Hey, you might want to put one together yourself. Okay, some background on the premise, and then I'm going to play you a sample of the show. Now, this actually stems from real life. In the early 1950s, there was a movie called Salt of the Earth that was done by blacklisted artists. Uh, They were Mike Wilson and Paul Jericho and a couple of others. Well, the government thought that it was subversive and tried to shut it down. 
John Hamm will play the FBI agent assigned to look into that. So now let's listen to a couple of minutes of The Big Lie. Aloha. What can I get you, ma'am? Uh, Coke, please. Actually, for, forget the Coke. Uh, what my husband really wants is a Johnny Walker Black. Yes, ma'am. Better make it a double. He's not a big John Wayne fan. This is not the way to RKO. Howard Hughes, full of surprises. What, are you kidding me? Griffith Park? Hey, what can I tell you? I wonder how your Cardinals are doing tonight. Boss, look out! Holy shit! The fuck? That was coming straight at us. With no headlights. Sweet Jesus. You see the driver? <laughs> yeah, I did. Griffith Observatory is very nearly full now. Remember where you just saw the sunset? The moon is on the opposite side of the sky now. Why does the moon seem to change shape as we have just observed? Why is there a whole fucking bar set up in here? And food. And why am I always starving? Each month and grew until it was full. And the second the moon achieved its perfect fullness, a giant pig attacked it and feasted on the moon until the end of the month. Until there was... Good evening, gentlemen. I'm afraid Mr. Hughes had to leave just now. Yeah, we just missed him. Jack. He should get those headlights fixed. Or turn them on. Or just learn to fucking drive. Man says what he thinks. I like that. Noah Dietrich. Jack Bergen. Anyone hungry or thirsty? What are these steak sandwiches? Tried tip, medium rare. Mr. Hughes thinks everyone likes what he does. Well, he's right this time. Jack, you did the cast and crew background for Angel Face, right? Yes, sir. This is an outstanding sandwich. It was extremely good work. Straight. To the point. Just doing my job. Now take your picture, Jack. Mr. Hughes likes to know what his friends look like. I usually meet someone before we become friends. Jack, it's fine. Well, if you don't want to do it, it's all right. Straight on or uh, profile? Just like that is fine. Thank you. No problem. Do I get one of him? <laughs> they couldn't use language like that on the radio, even on the NBC Blue Network. Okay, so now that you've heard it, let's meet the creative team. Once again, this is writer John Mankiewicz and director Aaron Lipstad. So first of all, this is exciting, having two guests instead of one. Inflation. I guess. <laughs> That's right. It's, it's so twice as good. Let's start out. John, this was a passion project of yours that you've been working on for, what, a couple of decades now? 
Yes, and I think it's a passion project of, of both of ours at the same time. We met Paul Jericho, who made Salt of the Earth, who had this great story, telling it, you know, it was a way to avoid it being sort of a message movie, you know, telling it from the point of view of the FBI guy who was following this production around. How did you guys decide to make it as a podcast? First of all, I think an important part of this is that Paul Jericho was going to write this movie. Mm -hmm. And shortly after we sold it, like within a week. So originally you sold it as a screenplay that you were going to do this as a movie, okay? Yeah, we were going to do it as a movie. Both of us were under contract to Paramount. We had a deal with Paramount, and we brought them this idea that Paul was going to write, and they said, great, let's go ahead, let's proceed. Okay, and then what? Paul was in L.A. for what was in fact a Writers Guild 50th anniversary commemoration of the beginning of the blacklist. And he, at that time, was living in Ojai. And on his, driving home from this Writers Guild commemoration, he was involved in a car accident and he died. Oh, man. So at that point, uh, Leah, his wife, and Aaron said, well, you'll write it now. We, Aaron and I were just going to produce it, along with uh, Dan Pine, who was our partner at this company we had at Paramount, where, where you guys were at at the same time, I think, mm-hmm. you and David. So I felt sort of a big responsibility writing it, but but as I wrote it, I kind of became, I mean, I knew about the blacklist. I mean, it was a horrible thing, but as I'm writing this, the idea that that people could say, well, you're not allowed to write. You're not even allowed to try. Writing's hard enough, you know, to think, <laughs> as, as, you know, to think you can support a family just by having ideas and selling them is insane. And for someone to tell you, well, you're not even allowed to try. As I was writing this, it just became more and more obscene and horrible that this happened. So I wrote it as a script. And I guess this was in in the late 90s. And at that point, the studio who liked the script and was going to make it wanted me to hire a blacklisted director to sort of mm-hmm. stunt casting as exactly. director. Right. And there were a few of those around Marty Ritt. I'm trying to think who else they mentioned. And I thought, well, I could throw Aaron over on a lot of stuff, but maybe not a blacklist movie. Scruples in Hollywood. <laughs> well, yeah, it was, it was, um, what's that all about? Yeah. Are you nuts? What are you talking about? I know. I know. I've, <laughs> I've uh, Aaron and Aaron and I talked about it at the time. It was pretty funny. So we continued. We you know we kept trying to make it in a couple of times over the years. You know we got close, and then when Audible came to me at the beginning of COVID, you know I thought about you know it's a period thing. They're talking about four and a half hours of material, just audio. I'd actually been listening to, because, you know, it was COVID, nothing to do. I've been listening to, like, these Beckett plays, you know, they did for the BBC. And Mm -hmm. basically, I thought podcast could be another word for radio play. So I called Aaron, and, you know, we decided to put it together. We had had John Hamm interested at one point in the movie, and 
Aaron called him and he said he was in. And once John was in it, Aaron, I don't know if you feel this way, but it was just like everything fell together. 10 days between waiting to hear from John was probably the most stressful of the whole project because we knew that, that you know, if John were willing to do it, it would make it a lot more easy for it to get to pass through the, the portals of Audible. And also, it's a lot easier to go to actors and saying, would you be in this? You know, it involves, you know, a day of work or a couple of days of work and John Hamm is the lead. And it gives you this kind of credibility that, uh, you know, I had never done anything like this before and John never done anything like this before. So that made it a lot easier. Now, during the the COVID period, I had a number of readings of my plays. And because a lot of actors who normally would not be available were just sitting home doing nothing, I was able to get some big name guys to do readings of my play. But it was just a reading of my play for fun. Uh, I didn't pay anybody. <laughs> Did any of these <laughs> actors? Uh, it's like, you know, what is their price for Audible? Did they want to be paid? Well, everybody got paid the, the SAG rate for recording, which is not very, not very much money, and especially for most- $15 a week. <laughs> well, it was, yeah, it was basically car money. Uh-huh. You know, I'd say that the biggest hurdle after getting John involved, John Hamm, that is, was what I didn't want to do is record a lot of people sitting in their living rooms or closets, wherever they would be. Um, I thought it was really important for the performances and for the relationships in the movie in the, in the, in the broadcast podcast to have them together, have them in the same room. And of course it was the middle of COVID and, you know, the, the production company that was funding this was not prepared for getting to a studio with actors, but that's what we did. So that was the hardest thing is getting, you know, getting John Hamm and Kate Mara and Brad Whitford and, Lisa Edelstein and Kirk Baltz into a studio so they could do their scenes together. And um, there's no doubt in my mind that no matter how hard that might have been, it was definitely worth it to to see them working together and to make adjustments in performance so that one actor would play off the other was invaluable. So, yeah, they got paid basically nothing and um, did come to a studio in Hollywood and, and brave COVID by working behind plastic partitions. <laughs> yeah. But not, I, I, but not I know all of them. When I recorded a Simpsons episode and it was just so valuable to have all of the actors standing around in a circle with their music stands and all just playing off of each other as opposed to, I know a number of animated movies where they'll bring in somebody and record his whole part, and then they'll bring in somebody else and record their part. And I just don't know as an actor how you can really perform, how you really can relate to other people when you do that. So I I imagine the performances have to be so far superior to had you just done it individually. And, and even now, and maybe I shouldn't say so, but there, there are a couple of people who did record remotely, and there's no question in my mind that if we had them in the studio, we could have, it would have been better. You know, the, the only other way to do that is to actually cut somebody's dialogue so that one actor is recording to another recorded dialogue, you know, the, the recorded dialogue of an actor, but that was really beyond, beyond our capability at that time. But, yeah, I think, I think actors 
you know, they work they work best when they when they can riff off somebody else. And uh, and I think that's if there's if there's value to the performance in this, which I really think there is, then that's why it is because they were they were each working together. Okay. And John, you weren't thinking of getting Martin Ritt to direct this instead of Aaron, right? You you're gonna let Aaron um, direct this? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. <laughs> You did the uh, writing. Body was immunocompromised. <laughs> you did the writing, and it seems to me that writing for audio, radio, is very different in the sense that, I, I mean, you, you look back, say, at those old radio dramas and, like, the old Superman shows where he right. would have to go up, up, and away. Because you needed to tell the audience that I'm flying now. And you probably encountered a number of times when something that you could easily show visually, now you have to convey through audio and how you do that in dialogue and still make it sound natural and not just, well, I'm going to put some more Splenda in my tea now. (laughs) Uh, that had to be a challenge a huge challenge and a very steep learning curve and i'm here to say that you know a picture might be worth more than a thousand words (laughs) Uh, you know because we as writers i come from the show not tell school and you have to think of locations that are sort of audio dependent like there's a a scene in the first episode that takes place at the planetarium that I don't think would would take place where he meets Howard Hughes at a planetarium that I don't think would have taken place at a planetarium in a in a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you have the freedom to do yeah. that. Yes, mm-hmm. but you have to be able to you have to be able to distinguish settings and you know there are some shorthand things that we figured out along the way, which is. Uh, we had Ham read FBI reports to say what was going on, and by burying them in the reports, mm-hmm. you That's know, hoping, clever. hoping that there was a little bit of tension in the fact that they were FBI reports, and he was reporting to his boss, and here's what's happening in the movie or in the podcast. It was a good device. Did you do a lot of rewriting during recording? It's like you're hearing it for the first time. Normally you get a chance to do a lot of rehearsal. When you're hearing it, you're going, oh, that might be a little clunky. Why don't we try this? So was there a lot of adjustments during the recording session? Yeah, there there was. The sound people we were working with expected, you know, we had a read-through in the beginning of all seven episodes, and they said, okay, the script's locked now, right? And Aaron and I looked at each other by by Zoom and said, Well, you could say that, but it's we're gonna be change we're gonna be changing a lot. Well, it was it was very interesting because the I don't know what you want to call it, let's call it the production company. There was a, a very talented and capable crew of guys who had done what I would call a more uh, maybe a less ambitious series of podcasts before and they had a way that you know they were planning to do this and i guess we in our naivete didn't realize how far from the from that norm we were going i mean we had over 150 speaking parts in this thing we had multiple locations it's period so the cars are period and the you know the the phones are period and everything's got to be a little more specific so what they had i gather normally done is they do a read-through for timing 
with anybody just to get to hear what it sounds like. And when we, when they said, we'll have a read through, we of course said, great. So we got a cast and some of whom were in the final product and many, many of whom weren't just as a favor, get on zoom and record the whole thing, you know, four and a half hours of it. Part of it was to try out some actors, but mostly it was so John and I and Jamie could hear the thing in its entirety. Mm-hmm. See if it made any sense. See if you could, you know, you knew where you were, you knew what was happening. And obviously had the opportunity to do a lot of what we thought were sort of necessary fixes, which they were prepared to, to really take what we had recorded and say, okay, now we're time. We're going to start cutting backgrounds. But it wasn't a major problem. It was just a little bit of recalibrating expectations. Now, I've seen a lot of reenactments of the old radio dramas, and it was always fun to see the guy off to the side with the coconut shells that were doubled for horse hoofs and things like that and and how they had to ingeniously find ways of making all of these sounds. Probably the funniest Frasier episode ever is Ham Radio, where they do that as a a sidelight. But you guys had the advantage in the digital age of all the sound effects you wanted processed any way you wanted. So I imagine that you were really able to take advantage of that. And so that really every moment of your plays sounds full and has the exact sounds that you want. Well, there's two different things. One is, you know, you alluded to earlier, which is, you know, when John wrote this, there are sequences where there wasn't dialogue. That was very visual, that things were communicated without dialogue. And that was a great challenge to imagine directing that movie. Mm-hmm. But when it came to this, we both had to really try and think very hard about how is this going to sound? What are we going to know? We didn't want to do what you were saying. Oh, Jim, I see you're wearing that blue suit again today. You know, we, we didn't want to, we wanted to have the dialogue sound like dialogue. The, the, the FBI reports were a big help, but, but you still wanted, you know, you didn't want to have to lead people by the nose and say things that, you know, obviously people wouldn't say. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you know, we both were listening to a lot of stuff to try and understand what the precedents were. And it's kind of amazing how much, if the audience is invested in the character and the performance, they will go with the story. And if you listen to old, even from the 30s, radio drama, the sound effects, as you have kind of alluded to, you know, the two coconuts, they would make a picture in your head of a location whether it was, you know, the sound of the wind or the, or the horse hooves or something. Right, and use your imagination. You would, you would go with it. So I would say, in retrospect, a lot of our fears were a little bit extreme because the performance is really take the story where you want it to go. But the other thing that was, that was fun was to do things with sound that were very specific to telling a story. Like, one thing I know I wanted very early on was the sound of Jack's Zippo lighter. Even when he's alone, you hear the lighter flicking open. You hear the splint on the on the wheel. You hear this, the, him taking a puff. You know exactly what's going on. And that becomes a kind of signature that, you you know, it wouldn't really make as much sense to do in a movie. But in something like this is really, you know, something that you can have fun with and get into character in ways that, you know, you wouldn't have thought of otherwise. I'm trying to think of how you do that with the coconut shells. But, uh... <laughs> how long did it take yeah. you to put together the final product once you had recorded it, putting in all the sound effects and music? Because that's something else we should talk about. Because uh, you have a Grammy-winning composer who 
put together like a different theme composition for every episode, correct? Yes. And also the music, I think, was very helpful in terms of conveying mood and, you know, moving the story along. And as you mentioned, you know, a different variation on the theme for each episode was just like deluxe and, you know, so great to have. And Mansfield was so sensitive to the material. We also had, you know, the airplanes buzzing the set of the movie. I don't know that you can do that with coconuts. You know, we had real airplanes and we, you know, (laughs) yeah, panning right to left and sound has progressed tremendously. How long did it take you then once you recorded all of the actors to finally cobble together the final product? Beginning of June and we delivered in the end of November. Perhaps we had a a locked script. (laughs) The script was never quite locked. And I have to say that I wrote it with uh, Jamie Napoli, who I worked with on my last TV show, in, you know, expanding this to, you know, to four and a half hours, who was fantastic. So there are seven episodes, and uh, are they all dropping at the same time, or are they being doled out week to week, kind of like a, an HBO Max type of thing? It's all at once. Audible is, is basically a Netflix model where you pay a monthly subscription and you listen to as much as you want. And, and yeah, they drop, they drop the show all at once. And um, the idea is that you're going to just uh, get in your car and drive until you uh, finish it. So if you're in L.A. and you get to uh, Phoenix, then you can stop. Yeah. Well, I also thought they say they're going to they're debut it at the Tribeca Festival. And I thought, well, what are they going to give people cars to yeah, you're just going to you know, sit in a room and listen teslas you know <laughs> well congratulations it sounds like a really fun project um i heard a preview of it and it was really really good and for me it was kind of like a throwback to those great old radio dramas and from time to time you know on Sirius XM, if I'm driving around looking for something to listen to, I'll listen to, you know, one of those old radio dramas. And it's fun, and it is engrossing, and you do get into the characters, and uh, you got an amazing cast, and just great writers, great directing, so it's it's going to be huge. Of course, what does that even mean? <laughs> Well, someone recently said, you know, have have you ever thought about doing a a movie of this? Uh, And and there's some talk of maybe doing a second season. The making of volunteers Uh, should should be part two. That's right. I think you could do way more than four and a half hours on the making making of volunteers. Just with uh, Tom and Rita. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) We were not loved by the Peace Corps. Anyway, (laughs) good luck with it, guys. Hard to believe I'm plugging another podcast competition, (laughs) but it's a great show, so I certainly recommend it. If there is a part two or sequel, this we'll make sure that Jack plugs your podcast on the air. I would sure appreciate that. Thanks much. Thanks, guys. 
I hope you found that interesting. Writer John Mankiewicz and director Aaron Lipstad. And again, it is called The Big Lie, and it is available on Audible. So that will do it for this edition of Hollywood and Levine. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, Bruce, and Jason Miller. If you want to get in touch with me for any reason, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com is my email address, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. I'm on Twitter, at Ken Levine. I'm on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Thanks so much for listening, and we will join you again next week right here on Hollywood and Levine.